Kids, you're welcome to go with Pastor Debbie. And the rest of you, would you turn to your neighbor and say hello? Turn to the neighbor you don't know, or maybe don't live with. If, I don't know if you're here with your... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know what... I don't know if you picked up on um, if you picked up on this, but there is a lot in the readings and uh, even in the psalm about how it's God who who brings us to a place of peace. Um, I wonder if you experienced any peace this week. If you had a moment, maybe it was just walking out of your door. The sun was just coming up. The lawn was just mowed. Or things were, the light was coming through the trees just right. Or the dogs were quiet when they should have been quiet. I don't know. Whatever it was. But it's good to be in those moments. <laughs> Our text today is, is from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 15. This is what Paul writes. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it, it is a um, it's not easy to come to peace. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever been in conflict with somebody or with a group of somebodies. Um, or maybe you're the kind of person that is just like in conflict with everybody you've ever met. <laughs> but but Peace, and, and real peace, is, is not an easy thing to achieve and sometimes probably seems impossible. I wonder how many of our families harbor resentment of one kind or another. Or how often work, just walking out the front door, is walking into the source of anger or despair for you. And yet we discover in, in Christ this extraordinary community peace. We're going to come back to what Paul says, be at peace with one another. But peace is, is not the absence of conflict, right? Peace doesn't mean everybody's laid down their sword and no one's getting punched in the nose. Right? Just like if you've ever wanted to feel respected, respect is not the absence of disrespect. Right? Respect is not saying, you don't, you don't necessarily respect somebody just because you've never cussed them out. Never be, just because you've never actively done something disrespectful doesn't mean that you're living respectfully. Well, peace is the same way. Just because you've never committed some act of violence against somebody doesn't mean that you've actually moved into a state of peace. We sometimes talk about it this way because it's kind of how the world 
sees things when it talks about war. Well, we're not fighting, so we must be at peace, right? But the Scriptures in Christ have a much deeper understanding of what peace is. It's not a cessation of conflict, but rather it is a, it's a positive thing. It, it's a thing that is present on its own. The Thessalonians we've talked about were people who, in many ways, were kind of weary, I imagine, tired and worn out. Paul himself had been, in some ways, kind of worn out by the city of Thessalonica. God had directed him there, and he had planted the church. You've heard this already up to this point, but he had planted the church. He'd spent only a few weeks or months with them, and then at that time, he'd kind of been kicked out. He had caused a stir in the synagogue, and so the Jews weren't very happy about him, and then he had caused a stir with, with the Gentiles because people kept, I don't know, converting and like believing this crazy thing. And so this, this caused a problem, and, and they kicked up a mob and eventually got Paul and, and, and threw him into prison, and prison, and somebody had to post bond. Jason had to post bond for him so he could get him out of, out of jail on the agreement that he would leave. You could look at that situation and you could say, well, Paul kind of came to some kind of peace with the mob, right? Because they're no longer actively trying to kill him. There's no more active conflict that's present. And yet, you know the difference if you've lived with somebody, you know the difference between peace and subterranean war, right? Simmering conflict where we just don't talk about. Thessalonians, I'm sure, were tired. Paul spends the whole first 60% of this letter talking to them about how they've persevered, about how they have done well to continue to believe and continue to be faithful and continue to follow in the midst of challenge and suffering and difficulty. And some of that, he's like encouraging them to keep going with it, you know? But some of that, he's just noticing and naming the fact that I am sure they're worn out. It's hard. Every day. To look out and have, for them, you know, the people in the market set against them. The people in their guild where they work set against them. Their neighbors and friends who, they used to go to the same temples together, but they're set against them. We talked about some of the sexual immorality that was going on, and they weren't invited to those parties anymore. And so then people get set against you. Like, who are you? You're so much better than us that you don't do this anymore? And you can see in, in the Thessalonian community, in some way, there is this sort of weariness it's getting worn down. And when you're young in the faith, and you're ignorant of what is to come, as Paul's kind of corrected some of that, it's easy, I'm sure, to start to tick. You know how that goes? You start to pick at the little things. And it's not the big stuff, right? You're, you're not 
criticizing anybody for some great big sin. You're not criticizing somebody for embarrassing the community publicly. It's like the way somebody pulls out of the parking lot. That's the problem. Like, why do they always have to go that way when obviously it's so much better to go out over here? They don't, they don't get their coffee right in the morning. <laughs> and then they leave, they leave kind of a, a mess all over the countertop. And what's that about? And don't they kind of care about us and think about us? And why do they always show up five minutes late? And why is that person always five minutes early? And they've always got every answer in their Sunday school book done just right. And they've got to be the first one with their hand in the air. Right? It's like all these little things when you're weary and you're tired and you're worn out and, and you're so exhausted of being approached and, and kind of oppressed or picked at from the outside, you start to turn inside. And you start to focus on the things that are wrong with each other, the little things that annoy you. In some ways, I think because that the problem outside, the real problem is too big. And you can't address it. Right? So you start to notice the little stuff. And so what does Paul say? I mean, he has talked about some huge issues in the church. Like love. <laughs> and now he's going to talk to them about how you actually do that. It's real easy, and you can get a lot of attention and, and likes and clicks if you just kind of stand up and talk about love. But when you actually start to drill down into how we love, it gets tougher. That's when friction shows up. This is what Paul says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Respect your leaders. That's what he says. <laughs> but where is the place that most of us go when things are not going the way they should? We go to the leadership. Right? Who is the first person to get fired when the season is not going well? The coach. Right? You don't get rid of De'Aaron Fox. <laughs> you get rid of the coach. You've got the talent on the court. It's somebody else who's not arranging it correctly, right? It must be their fault. And so in the community of Thessalonica, it seems like maybe this church, this report that Timothy brings back to Paul, maybe this church had started to pick at or misunderstand or, or see the faults in their leader's before they tried to bear up their weaknesses. And so what is it that Paul says? Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. They labor among you, they're over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. They encourage and exhort even while kind of correcting. And esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul seems to be saying that, look, First off, there's some kind of order here, and, and we can kind of talk about maybe what it is, but there are people in the community of Christ who are over other people. 
And there are relationships of responsibility and giving and, and sacrifice and service. And they kind of go both up and down. There are those who exhort and encourage. There are those who support and help. There are those who encourage and admonish and labor. Right? There's some kind of role. Everybody is not everything. And one of the important things for us to learn as we seek to be a people at peace, a community at peace, is how do we be a people who, and I don't mean this in like a controlly kind of way, but know our role. And who support others in their work. It's tough. It's so easy to pick on leadership and to see their lack. And if you want to know how easy it is, come talk to me after service and I'll tell you how all of my bosses are really not doing the thing that they ought to be doing. <laughs> right. How everybody over me in the church, and there are people over me in the church, is missing it. It's easy in some ways to be Ezekiel. You heard what Tom read. Ezekiel the prophet, there's, there's a kind of catharsis almost in this, where Ezekiel brings this prophecy against the bad shepherds of Israel. Now, to be fair, they were really, really bad shepherds. <laughs> and I'm not here to defend all leaders. <laughs> there are leaders, there are a lot of leaders who use the church and use those who follow them to their own gain. And they should be corrected and challenged and exhorted, and admonished, and when necessary, publicly shamed. Ezekiel comes after these wicked shepherds of Israel, whose whole goal is just to cook the sheep. To use them up for their own purposes. But did you notice where that passage ended? It ended with God Himself saying, I will be their shepherd. I will be the one who leads them into pastures. I will be the one who makes them to lie down. I will be the one who protects and keeps and goes after the lost. And you see in this the resonance of Jesus in John 10, I am the good shepherd. You see the one who goes after, the shepherd who goes after the one and leaves the 99. Right? He is the shepherd who puts himself on the line for the sake of, of those who are hurting. And so what's happened in the Gospels is that you have the kind of bad leadership of Israel and it's, it's not that then the, the answer to that is to have no leadership. Sometimes that's how we might think of it. If we've had bad leadership, I'd rather have no leader at all, but that's not what the Gospels do. They, in Jesus, all of that bad leadership gets kind of pressed down and compressed and redeemed into a new kind of leader. So that we see what leadership ought to be. And this is the challenge of the scriptures, is that sometimes we see what ought to be critiqued and criticized, and we say, well, we should just do without it. We don't need that. If I've suffered abuse and hurt in the church, and so many of us have, it's easy for us to move into a place of, then just have no leadership at all. Have no order at all, but Paul says no. Paul, who has been a part of being an abusive leader early in his life, says no, we've actually been called into a kind of life 
that is ordered and structured for the good of all. Leaders ought to labor and admonish and serve and you should esteem them highly in love. It's easy for us to pick on leaders, but if you've ever been in that role, often you discover how difficult it really is. And you might not make the mistakes those leaders made, but you'll make your own. (laughs) I just think how certain I was of my parents' mistakes (laughs) until I started making them. (laughs) And in doing exactly the same thing. And so when we move into roles of leadership or Really, we probably ought to say service in the church. (laughs) You know, to move up the ladder, so to speak, is to move up in service. Where the first is the last, and the last is the first. As a leader, the word is there to labor and to take charge and to admonish, which just means both encourage and correct. And here's the thing that's so hard about that for me. It's not about me. I can't be in this to get the affirmation that I want elsewhere in my life. Right? If I'm in this to fill the holes that exist in me, for somebody to tell me, you did great, you look great, you are great, I'm going to be in real trouble. I have got to be in this for the same things that God is in it for. There was one word in here, though, that surprised me. Because I went, I thought, what does this word respect mean? What does it mean to respect? Probably because I was trying to figure out how I could still disrespect my leaders. You ever do that? You're looking up a definition, so you know what you can... (laughs) You're trying to get around what it says. You know what the word is? It's it's a common word. It's like an everyday word. It's not even a $2 word. It's like a... (laughs) It's a 10-cent word. Here's the word in Greek. Ready? See. See. S-E-E. See with your eyes. What is it that Paul says? He says, see your leaders. See them for who they are. Respect does not mean, well, I didn't disrespect them. It means I worked hard to understand and to see them for who they are and the life that God has called them to. And with that understanding, I then took action. See your leaders. See them for their pressures and their strengths and their weaknesses. Thank God for them. And please, please pray for them. And only then move into criticism. Right? Only then move into the place where we say, I would love to see this happen differently. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but when we feel seen, when we know that somebody has genuinely heard us, when we know that they actually have a grasp of what of why we do what we do, we can take all kinds of criticism. We can take all kinds of pushback, right? But when somebody comes in and just kind of 
cheaply or easily starts throwing darts. Those are the things that corrode a relationship. Those are the things that cut at peace in a community. And where is it that Paul goes next? The second half of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And the thing I hope you see in this is that the peace that Paul is calling his people to is not a cheap peace. It's a costly peace. It's it's not the kind of peace that says, just stop saying mean things. Okay, that's me. I'm a smooth it over person. Right? Everybody just stop saying mean things and we can move on. Right? No, that's not the kind of peace Paul or Jesus is calling us to in this case. He calls us to the peace that when you look at a community like this, you go, wow, they love each other. Wow, they actually want the best for each other. There is a a wholeness and a fullness present in this people who are invested in one another's lives. And even if you wanted to pull them out of each other's lives, you couldn't do it. Because they're so hooked in and locked in, and it's not meddling, it's genuine love. It's genuinely desiring the best. There might be a little bit of meddling. But the meddling is for a good purpose. Right? And a good reason. It's for admonishing. (laughs) And encouraging. (laughs) Guys, our community is a place that we discover our failures. And it's so easy for us to, when we fail, to say, I'm not going back there. I'm not going back to that place where there's embarrassment and shame difficult relationships. But Jesus, I'm convinced, He calls us to be committed to the church and at peace with the church. Because to be committed to the church is to be committed to Christ. I mean, and and I know that pushes some of our boundaries. A lot of us want to believe that it's our personal relationship with Jesus and we kind of take that wherever we want. And you can do that, but you have to avoid a good chunk of the New Testament. To be committed to Jesus is to be committed to the church. Every letter that Paul ever wrote was either to a church or a leader of a church. Right? We, this faith happens in community. It happens as a body. And so in order for us to be at peace with one another, it's so critical that we we actually want and desire each other's best. That we are actually invested in in the best possible outcome in anybody's life. And, And that means in prayer, but that means in time, that means financially, that means emotionally, that we are hooked into one another because this is ultimately the kingdom of God. Families rise and fall together. We go up and down together. One of the challenges is it's easy for us to expect the one who is, again, we're talking about the latter, the order here, right? It's easy for us to expect the one who is the greater servant (laughs) to do more. And we don't see that we need the whole body. Right? Paul talks about the church as a body saying each part of the body has its role. 
And we might all look up to the head and go, head, why don't you do it? You're the smartest one. Like, you got the brain, so get with it. Right? Put this together. But the truth is, is the feet won't walk, the head goes nowhere. And if the head tries to walk, the feet stay exactly where they are. Right? Heads don't walk very well. And so we've got to have this, this sense of being in this together, being invested in this together. And I mean, frankly, as a community, we're, there's a little bit of struggle here right now because we have a lot fewer leaders than we used to have. And there's an element that, this is not a guilt trip, but it's something we've got to come to together. How and where are we going to step up? And where are we going to choose to take action and invest energy? What are the areas that are best for us to discern and, and see and understand where God has called us to be? God, in my report to the board this month, I, <laughs> I, I printed a table of all the areas we're missing leaders in ministry. Right? There's holes. And it's not like we're a perfect church if we plug all the holes. That's not what I'm saying. But we, all, we are called to move together as one. So I'd encourage you here to think about maybe where do I step into a hole in order to be a part, to contribute to this piece. One of the difficulties that comes in a church that is like Thessalonica, sort of weary from attacks from the outside. In the context I've been in, usually it happens not because of attacks from the outside, but because people get tired from the inside. Right? And one of the things that can happen is we, we I, I, there's probably a psychological word for this. I don't know it. I, in my head, it's called complaint bonding. <laughs> Where you bond with somebody and you feel really close to them, right? But you notice you never talk about anything good. You, you get really close and bonded together because you complain about the same thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and there, this, this happens. This happens. We, we can get in tight with each other because the same things make us angry. And, and then we try to come up with solutions and we're on totally different pages. <laughs> right? We're not on the same team then, but we're both pretty sure about what's wrong. And, and it's such a corrosive and a dangerous thing to a community to come together over what's wrong rather than being bound together by that positive peace, that positive love, that, that positive vision of where we're going. We've got to watch our tongues and be careful what we say and how we act in those situations. Finally, Paul lands on this wonderful couple verses, 14 and 15. There's three kinds of pieces here, at least for me. The leaders, peace, and then the weak. We urge you, brothers, admonish and encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. No one repays anyone evil for evil. Right? You didn't come to my Bible study, so there's no way I'm going to your Bible study. Right? <laughs> but seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is 
Paul putting in everybody's hands the responsibility of the leaders. I mean, who here would raise their hands when I say, okay, who here is weak? Who here is, <laughs> everybody who raised their hand is, has either is now or has been on the board, okay? <laughs> right? Most of us don't identify ourselves as the weak, right? Most of us, we identify ourselves as the strong or we're willing at least to be put into those positions of leadership. And yet Paul says here, admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all, seek to do good and not evil. And, and, and this is kind of the approach. It's like, okay, first off, I'm not going to speak anything wicked. I, I, I might bring critique, I might bring pushback against leaders, but I'm not going to speak, speak out of anger or, or you know, hatred, right? I'm not going to do that to leaders. But also, I'm going to seek to be at peace with everybody. I'm going to seek to be a part of a community that is growing in the life of God, that unlike those wicked shepherds, is saying, how can I help these sheep to lay down in green pastures? All right, how can I bring them into the good rolling hills of Israel? But lastly, if I, at the end of the day I have any time left, part of the question is, having done those two things, where can I seek those who need help? Admonishing the idol. Encouraging them to do good work. Encouraging those who are faint-hearted. Instead of just seeing somebody on Sunday and going, boy, they didn't look good this week. Maybe I call. Right? Maybe I get out that directory. <laughs> or check in or make sure that person's doing okay. I engage. And be patient with all. even if people misread you. And if you want to criticize the community, you may. But first, <laughs> before you criticize, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. And confess all the wrong that you've done and make sure that you're seeking to do good. Okay, when you've done those six things, criticize away. <laughs> right, as I've heard sponsors in 12-step programs say, to their sponsees, you can relapse. Feel free to relapse. Go buy that drug. Go, go to the liquor store, whatever. But you have to call me first. right? You have permission, but first you have to actually engage the people who care about you, who love you, and are not seeking to make a buck off of you. They just want you to do well. And here's what's incredible. When we do that, so often it just kills the root of sin. That, that, that thing just dies right at the root. Because we stop feeding the lie. We stop feeding the lie that we are wronged and abused, that somebody else should have known better or done better. When we do those small things with a phone call, an email, a card, an invitation to go get coffee, the thing is, these change the way that we see the world. They change the way that we see ourselves. They change the way we see our brother. They change the way we see our sister. And we engage with a new lens. I still miss Liz, Francisco, and the cards she would write. 
And I, I'm... Here's the thing about Liz, who died almost a year ago. I'm sure nobody ever complained to her, at least not on purpose. And I think if you did complain to Liz, she took that as a sign that I need to encourage that person twice. Right? I, I need to actually make sure that that person that I just heard a complaint about is born up and helped. And it's incredible. I mean, this is, this is a good church. <laughs> this is a wonderful church and a wonderful place. But it's incredible how much a voice like Liz's just cuts through. It cuts through the noise of the world. And the noise of our own heads. And the noise of, of the devil speaking those kind of corrosive things to us. It cuts through the lie that we have to be perfect in a particular kind of way in order to encourage or admonish or help or do good. Because it changes the way you see things. There's an old story. I'm sure it's not true, but it's a good story. Okay? <laughs> it goes by a few names. I'm going to call it the abbot and the rabbi. And so there was an abbot of this monastery. And it used to be a, mon a big monastery with a lot of different branches everywhere. It had been a big order, hundreds, thousands of monks. Right? And it's just dwindled over time. They've lost members. They, they've closed down branches. They've shut down homes. And the abbot of this monastery who used to, it used to be hundreds or thousands of monks is now down to like five or ten. And they're old and they're not very impressive and their prayers kind of, you go to their church services and it's like, who wants to be here? Right. And he's struggling with this. And so he walks out into the woods to this hut where he meets this rabbi who used to, they used to meet up and talk and encourage each other sometimes. And, and he's telling the rabbi about this. You know, things are not how they used to be. It's not as good as it used to be. It's a struggle. It's hard. Everything feels like work. Nothing is joyful. And the rabbi just kind of listens. And he says, right as he's about to leave, you know, I, I want to tell you one thing. We, we've heard and we know that the, the Messiah is, a, is among you. And that's all he says. One of you is the Messiah. And the abbot says, that's interesting. <laughs> right? And he goes back to the monastery and he keeps doing the stuff that he's doing, but every time he's in the kitchen washing dishes or peeling potatoes, every time he's leading services or prayers, or even when he's sweeping up and counseling somebody, he's looking at this monk like, is this it? Is this guy the Messiah? Is it this brother? Is it, is it that brother over there who I never really noticed or paid attention to and kind of forgot his name? Like, well, not... <laughs> right? Like, like is it... Who, who is it? If the Messiah is among us, and that's what the rabbi says, like, which one of you is it? And, and he starts to kind of begin to treat everybody like they just might be the one. 
And then one day he actually lets it slip to one of the others that, you know, this rabbi down the street, he told me that the Messiah was among us. And so that one starts to look around and treat each person like, oh, maybe they're the, act- like they're the ones. And, and pretty soon you see this monastery begin to just turn around and the attitude is totally different. And people are seeing one another different, and it becomes a place of life and joy and peace, and people want to be a part of that, and there is this richness and there's this growth that goes along with it. right? And it's probably a silly story, but here's the thing. When we start to treat each person with the expectation, which is absolutely true, that the image of God is present in them, and that it's not like God made Art with a little less image that he made me with. Right? It's not like God makes the struggling with less of the image of God in them. It's the image of God. Full stop. And so you either treat people with that kind of respect and and expectation and hope, or you miss it. And what the rabbi was able to do in that story is unlock in the abbot, the expectation of a treasure in each person. And what kind of community do we become if we're convinced that every single person that we're talking to has and is the image of God? How long do you linger after service if you're like, is Jesus really here? (laughs) Right? You're not so worried about lunch. (laughs) Right? Things take a different kind of priority. The Messiah is among you. The believers in front of us are not, they're not our problem. They're the way to our salvation. There's this, Lois gave me this book twice. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I was looking through it, and, and we're going to have some small groups that, that are, are built around this um, curriculum or this, this book. It's called The People of Grace, Becoming Disciples Together. Um, and he ends the book with a with a kind of what's the word encouragement, admonishment, right? To learn what it is to follow Jesus in the same way that that Wesley and those in the 1700s learned to follow Jesus. They called them classes or bands. They were groups of people that would meet regularly and would ask each other the hard questions: Are you really following Christ, or are you just trying to look like you're following Christ? Do you really want it? Or do you just want people to think that you want it? Right? There's all these kinds of all these kinds of ways. And yet the heart of that, I think, is that there is the encouragement and the accountability, the expectation that we actually can do this. Right? To follow the Lord with this kind of peace, to follow the Lord with this kind of respect, it, it requires us to see one another. We can do it. So many in our world are just not seen. They're just ignored. And I hope and I pray this morning that we come to the table with an expectation that Christ will give us new eyes to see those who need to be seen, whether that's in respect or challenge, or peace, or encouragement. And that as we go out from this place, 
we'll be able to either to walk with our own shoulders a little bit higher or help somebody else walk with their shoulders just a little bit higher. Lord, it seems like a simple thing. It seems like a simple thing to respect and see one another. It seems easy to kind of say, let's be at peace. And yet we know, Lord, that it meets us right at the, the place that our own souls and spirits create friction with you. And so we pray, Father, for the oil of your Spirit to give us peace and to enable us not just to have peace, but to be at peace with one another. Not just to reduce conflict, but to actively bring a life of peace and wholeness and shalom into this world, starting here, starting with us. Starting, Lord, is as much as I'm afraid to say it with me. May we, Lord, be a people of peace. And as we come to this table, which is a meal of peace, open us up to your work in our lives. Enables us to trust and to follow, we pray. Amen.